It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. Well, so Stephen, um, I listened to the podcast while I was away last week, and I was grateful to you for saying that you, are, you now finally appreciate how difficult it is to steer the conversation in any kind of, like, like it's like a canal barge, and you just have to tug very gently on it. Whereas I see myself as like the zany first mate who occasionally like goes, let's go over there. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I think that's probably true. But so last week I was um, I was in Uganda, I went out with a, with a charity to visit some secondary schools there, and I didn't have any access to the internet, like I got about you know 10 minutes a couple of times a day and I came back and I sort of thought oh I'll drop in see what's what's actually happened and realistically nothing that had materially changed anything had happened and I was really aware of the fact that had I been here last week even though everything that happened was only at the level of micro froth there's just so much of politics news is about kind of it feels like a kind of constantly revising for an exam like, and you just have to create small amounts of stuff that everybody has to know about. And because so much of it is about trade and information as well. There's always kind of like, oh, don't you know about this? Haven't you heard about this? You know, everybody's so on hyper alert for like having to know every tiny detail of everything to prove that they're in the know. But so I, my question to you, really, and then I will answer it myself, perhaps, is what has actually changed fundamentally in British politics since this seismic event of last August, since the election of Jeremy Corbyn as Labour Party leader? Is, are we In any way, are we any further on with anything than we were then? Um, so I think there have been a couple of significant events and a couple of significant non-events. Um, the, the non-events first, partly because it's top of mind, is there has been a complete absence of a debate in British politics about the changing role of China. Uh, and, yeah, so this week, a, you know, British still is in a perilous position. Why? Because uh, the Chinese government is is effectively artificially lowering the steel price, which is fine if you think that China will keep a steel price low forever and ever, even after everyone else's steel steel plants have gone to the wall. If you don't, however, and you don't necessarily think that China will always be a benevolent supplier of steel to the rest of the world, that should be somewhat troubling. And that is a debate which is entirely absent, not just between the two parties, but within the parties who are paralysed either by Trident or the European Union. I'm always um, surprised by how little attention. I mean, we did a we did a guest edit a couple of years ago with Ai Weiwei, the Chinese artist and dissident, and you know it was very <laughs> critically well received, but it didn't get very it it didn't make a, a tall a splash in the way that some of our you know so the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Russell Brand one, despite the fact you know it had some really fascinating stuff in it. 
And the Chinese state is enormous and, you know, it's a country of a billion people. And yet it gets, you know, it just get it just, it, it's sort of like not even a question. And one of the things that I think I probably have more respect for Barack Obama than I do maybe for Cameron is that he is clearly aware of that, that, that the rise of Asia is a really interesting story. So to come back to me being in Uganda last week, the main road from Entebbe, where the airport is to Kampala, the capital city, is being built with Chinese money. And yeah. there, are, there are big pictures of like the docks in Shanghai and, and signs in Chinese along it. And then, and people will talk about the fact that because China's economy has now slowed down, actually that Chinese investment in lots of African countries is being, the, the tap is being turned off essentially. And that has you know, really big repercussions for, for countries that had come to expect the idea that China was going to pump them full of infrastructure money in return for their mineral resources or whatever. Yeah. No, and the kind of the, yeah, the, the China factor is sort of, is and has transformed parts of Africa. It's also transformed the political calculation because China now effectively has set up a world bank on its own. Uh, the West can no longer say, well, you know, don't change your constitution like this or there'll be no more money. And you, there is an open argument about whether or not that is a good or bad thing or a combination of the two. Yeah, and again, I completely agree. One of the reasons, no, many, many reasons why I have more time for Obama than Cameron. But one of them is that... Uh, on these big seismic issues about what the world will look like in 2050, where is where is Cameron? Where is Britain? What what is the you know kind of well climate change is another yeah. really interesting example. So I mean I'm just I know I've probably mentioned it before certainly in in conversation. The Atlantic's very very long twenty thousand word whatever it is interview with Obama the Obama doctrine. He talks about the fact that more people are killed in bathtubs every year in the US than by terrorism, and he also talks about you know the climate the problem with climate change being this kind of thing that is designed to repel government intervention but at least i feel like at least it's on his grid like yeah. cameron used to remember do you remember, do you remember the huskies do you remember the huskies the huskies, huskies are, probably dead now i know i was just about to say that the huskies yeah. probably been put down some time ago but you know that i just i never hear a that is never a central even when we have droughts and floods and and, and extreme weather events it's kind of as soon as they're over that's it well that's the thing i because you know, I know this is the world's most obnoxious London-centric thing to say, but that Storm Katie is really the first of these that we've had in London. And the thing is, whenever I'm, I upload or write an environment story and you search weather, you get, oh, was there another storm? And, yeah, and, and it has just uh, become a terrifying part of the backdrop, and there is a complete absence of political leadership. So those are the non-events. I think the big events that have happened... And whether or not they are proved right is still the most significant. Is The Conservative Party basically believes that the Labour Party went out of business on the 12th of September when it elected Jeremy Corbyn. And it... Um, it can never afford to it, dick about. Yeah, it, yeah. And, and effectively, it turns out that certain victory is just as corrosive to Conservative unity as the prospect of certain defeat was in from about 1994 to 1997. Uh, and again, you have exactly the same, uh, the same caesuras, the same splits over Europe. Um, I mean, the, you know, the it's interesting. I mean, one one uh, pro Remain minister said, "Well, actually, what would really help right now is for Corbyn to take a six point lead in a couple of polls, so then that would get everyone behaving themselves." And um, one thing I would suggest that probably is impactful that has happened, and that's kind of as a result of Europe is the resignation of Ian Duncan Smith. Because I feel that with him dies universal credit, right? I mean, it'll limp on in in being technically alive, but there's no great force behind it 
anyway. I mean, they were, you know, I think there are hope to get more single men basically onto it this summer, right? But yeah. it's just going to become one of the. It's going to become a sort of. Well, it is now in every yeah in its in its in its pared down form. It is now in every job centre in Wales. Uh, but yeah, it's it's single single men without dependents. Where you how you feel about universal credit depends on where you come down on Osborne's deficit targets. I am obviously a massive sceptic about them. I don't think he will well, ever. Turns out like he is too. It turns out yeah. like he doesn't actually think they're that important either. Yeah, he, he will never. He will never hit them. Um, yeah, there's there's too much internal pressure. Yeah, because the the slightly difficult thing for Labour is that voters, it turns out, love the idea of austerity theoretically, and they are opposed to it in the yeah they they support it in the general and they oppose it in the specific. I think it's uh, more than that. I think it's that they don't mind if it seems to be happening to someone else. Yeah. I mean, but that's not, you know, that's not, that's sort of how everybody feels about bad things happening. They, they like the idea of everybody generally tightening their belts, but they don't specifically want money to be taken away from them. They were under the understanding that it would be people who were being given sort of free houses and too much money and allowed to sit around all day with massive flat screen televisions, right? Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all of that kind of uh, us and them stuff. I think uh, that the um, the emerging sort of slight questioning that kind of came out of that Ian Duncan Smith thing, and uh, uh, more hearing more whispers of it in the Tory bench about whether or not pensioners have been over coddled, mm-hmm. I think is an interesting emergent development. Uh, maybe this is just me being horrendously cynical, but so there will be lots of Tory commentators will say, "Oh, isn't it awful that we've protected these affluent pensioners who all vote?" Some Tory MPs will say, it. "Ian Duncan Smith will say." But none of them will even think about sitting as a crossbench. You know, the, yeah, the, or indeed actually actively campaigning to have any of those benefits cut because ultimately yeah. you need to say those kind of things in order to make yourself look not hypocritical, but they are also vote losing. It's like what you wrote about in your column this week is that actually, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is supposed to, you know, has, well, and definitely is actually, you know, he is an anti austerian, right? He is a socialist. But is John McDonnell really going to let him go into the next election promising massive tax rises on the middle class? Yeah. And I just don't see it happening. Yeah, and the thing is, I mean, the, yeah, so the Conservatives' approach to austerity is successful and insidious in that they have largely done it to other people, you know, to the disabled, to people who have acute care costs, uh, most of whom people don't... Well, they don't get out to a lot of yeah. marches and they don't write a lot of columns in the broadsheet newspapers. Yeah. I mean, you know, with the, you know, to, to, do a, the, to do a slightly undignified victory dance, as one of our listeners very nicely pointed out, we were, I think, the only, the only post-budget coverage to go those... Those pip, pip cuts. cuts are ridiculous. Those, those are ridiculous. Yeah. And what will happen is, is occasionally they will do something which kind of offends enough of middle opinion but no one is no one is actually going to seriously campaign for people to have their free bus passes taken away because it's it looks miserly it looks miserly what will instead happen is that they will you you cannot balance the books through cuts alone the terrifying thing at the moment for the left is it appears and actually it helps the right if they can keep going just just five years more i know we've been in this tunnel for a long old time but don't worry there's some light at the end of it honest because um, it's yeah, it's a sunk cost fallacy. And also, I think very little has changed in Labour since the election of Corbyn, in the sense that he, the, the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party, is still grumpy. It still doesn't think he can win, uh, but it also doesn't have any alternative, either candidate or theory of what a, a winning Labour Party would look like. So. I think the bulk of the Labour Party is actually starting to come to the bulk of the Parliamentary Labour Party is starting to come to terms with him, for precisely for precisely that reason. Um, 
Dan Jarvis has not particularly impressed on his little sorties. Obviously, none of the defeated candidates from last time could do it. Uh, Chukar Amuna still divides opinion within the parliamentary party. There are a couple of um, MPs like John Woodcock who called for Corbyn to go last week in a somewhat bizarre article for the Mirror. But um, but everybody but, else sort of yeah. feels like, well, let's make the best fist of what yeah. we've got, which I mean, is, you know, they're converts to the kind of just make it work faction. Yeah, I mean, there will be a coup attempt this summer. Uh, you keep saying this, but but why? I think, as I think, I'm not sure if I said some or just in conversation, but this is depressing and it shouldn't be true, but there are basically people who have gone like, right, so we've had a coup planned for this point, so even if we don't think it'll succeed... Yeah, we've 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 bought the bunting now, and and also actually, if you do think um, that Corbyn is going to lead you to electoral disaster, really, this is your last chance to do anything about it, um, because of the way the local elections fall um, this year. This is fun fact: the first time that everyone in Britain in May will vote in an election since 1968. Yeah, in a non-general election, non-referendum year. So there's. Police and Crime Commissioner elections, there's local council elections in lots London of places, Mayor, there's the London, London Mayor, there's Northern Scotland, Ireland. there's Wales, there's Northern Ireland. This is so, a very good point to plug the fact that we have very soon coming up an elections An election special. special. Um, so if you are a Corbyn sceptic and you do not get rid of him after these elections, you're not going to get rid of him next time after about eight county councils vote. Your next chance is to do it after the Euros. Um, but as as Labour saw last time when they tried to get rid of Ed after the Euros, and you remember that moment when Labour were third for long periods on the night, and it was only when London came in right at the last and they finally inched into second place, and people realised, oh no, we're not in the right place. But by that point, it's too late. Can I take a moment to say something else that hasn't happened, that I predicted wouldn't happen, and lots of people were very rude to me on Twitter about, which is that it turns out that, as predicted, it was not that Scotland was crying out for proper socialism and proper anti-austerity policies, and that's why they voted for the SNP in such large numbers. It turns out they voted for the SNP because they wanted to vote for the SNP, because there has been, as far as I can see in the polls, no recovery for Labour in Scotland. In fact, they're facing a possible third Oh, I mean, in fact, actually, them, them, them betting big on the idea that Scotland was um, going to be more receptive to a, you know, because like in 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 Scotland, Labour has committed to getting rid of the unilateral deterrent. They've committed to raising taxes. They, you know, they they, I mean, they are unquestionably to the left of the SNP, and their reward is likely going to be third place or at least a hell of a fright uh, from the Scottish Conservatives. Um, but no, it's about national identity i mean also i mean to to you know further burnish my um credentials as a right-wing sleeper agent the snp's case on not raising the 50 on raising the rate 50p is entirely correct it's not like this fairly specious claim that oh you could uh, i'll i'll move to geneva if i'm a banker in london it's a pain in the neck for me to move to geneva it's not a pain in the neck if i'm a banker in edinburgh you move 100 miles south you move 100 miles well i mean you're kind of this this idea what do we think that manchester or newcastle and then their council leaders aren't going to roll the red carpet for the financial services sector in in edinburgh if the snp were to raise tax to 50p in the pound of course they wouldn't they'd be mad not to because by doing that they could save their services from the acts that the tories are devolving to them i mean yeah the idea that the snp could uh, raise taxes and not have massive capital flight is obviously for the birds although of course what that exposes is and even if you were to leave the united kingdom uh you still have somewhere with the same language a very similar financial regulatory framework the same currency the same currency 
you know, just as with Brexit, the freedom that the independence campaign and the Leave campaign are offering is not freedom at all. Okay, well, that's upset all uh, of our nationalist listeners. Uh, is there anything else that hasn't changed or that you expected to change or anything else that has changed that you think is truly significant in the last six months? I mean, I think it's something I expected to change, but it's changed quicker than I thought, is the collapse of George Osborne's stock. Do you think that Boris Johnson's stock will concomitantly collapse? I mean, there's been... Matthew Paris wrote a fierce, brutal attack on him. Uh, Nick Cohen then wrote one from more of a left-wing perspective that on the day after in The Observer. Or is he... I contested this week in my column that he, like Donald Trump and like Nigel Farage, has moved through the gaffosphere and out into the sunlit upland where it actually becomes embarrassing to admit that people can make, say that many offensive things and still have a career. So it just becomes now evidence when he sort of talks about, like, was it with that quote that Matthew Paris had about him talking about bum boys or yeah. something? Or like pickaninnies. You know, you just have to now, that has to be re- branded as sort of being evidence of like what a joker or he's just a bit of a character because it'd be too embarrassing to admit that there is no sanction in British politics or American politics for saying that kind of thing in the polls I, I think there is there is partly an element that uh, the commentary it will, will will start to unify around Boris in large parts because of uh, of that sort of embarrassment factor I mean I still wouldn't rule out someone like Theresa May being able to spring a surprise the, I think the danger for Boris is if Osborne can kind of continue as this sort of wounded, bad bank, but who still commands maybe 50 MPs, that means it's much easier for Boris Johnson to get to the membership. If he, if his stock completely collapses... Osborne's. Osborne's. I mean, most of his MP backers are not Osborneites. They're, you know, that most fragile bit of a parliamentary alliance, MPs who just want a job. Mm. Um, if they panic and they decide that Stephen Crabb is the safe haven or Theresa May is the safe haven, maybe that person will have enough votes to keep Boris out of the final two. Yeah, I also think um, if the Corbyn, uh, like you say, if Corbyn actually manages to stay where he is and level in the polls or even pull slightly ahead, which is not impossible, you know, Ed Miliband was polling, what, 11 points ahead yeah. at this point in the electoral cycle, then people might think, well, actually, you know, what does Boris Johnson want to be Tory leader for? Like, what, so what are his policies? What are his plans? Is there anything to Borisism beyond he's going to make a few speeches about whiff-waff? Yeah. Um, and I think that might make people slightly kind of concerned okay well that's it we've 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 put everything to rights we've talked about what's important and what's not if um there is anything we've missed out dear listeners please feel free to email us or tweet us at stephen kb or at helen lewis uh we don't have george george cannot be down the line from the lobby we could have got george down the line from like ipanema <laughs> ringing george in rio <laughs> but um but uh, he will be back in two weeks time And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And to discuss the uh, Night Manager and the enduring appeal of spy novels, I and Helen are joined by a uh, emissary from the Seriously podcast, <laughs> Our culture writer, Anna Leskovich. Hello. So, Anna, I know that you talked about The Night Manager on Seriously. Can you give us a... For those of us who perhaps haven't yet got around to listening to Seriously this week, can you give us a precy of what you talk about so I don't ask you the same questions? Uh, oh, God, you're really testing my memory. I think Come on, it was like, what, three days ago? Uh, it was a little while ago. Uh, it was before Easter. Yeah, we talked about the sort of glamour of The Night Manager as a programme and something that you and I talked about earlier, actually, how difficult it is to 
kind of accept Roper as a villain in the first few episodes because you're so just entranced by the glamour of all the different locations and tall wispy women draped in silk so here's the thing i the director of it is a woman called suzanne beer and she also directed a film that i watched the previous don't judge me don't judge me over the bank holiday weekend my husband has a strange love for piers brosnan rom-coms oh my god that sounds like my ideal bank holiday weekend (laughs) okay that makes me feel slightly better so there is one that he said was very moving and it was and it was the woman from either the borgen or the borgen or (laughs) the borgen or the bridge and the premise of this was that she had recently had a mastectomy and then her husband was having an affair but then her daughter was getting married to uh, piers brosnan's son and it was, this is not Mamma Mia. No, this is, this is not Mamma Mia. This is the thing. This is like a this is a, 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 a heart wrenching. But also, they were getting married in in Italy. So, I my theory is that Pierce Brosnan chooses his film choices based around where will be a nice location for the summer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like either way he goes to Greece. In this case, he went to um, Italy. Um, but it was very stylishly done, and all the characters were really nicely drawn. So on the strength of that, I then decided to binge watch. The Night Manager. And the thing I thought The Night Manager did really well was it brought it up to date without doing the thing that is now, I think, post maybe like Sherlock, which is to be hyper-modern and like have everyone texting all the time and everybody doing like so into technology. You know, that felt, it actually felt very much like a Bond film because it tr- it gave, it had that sort of 60s sense of cool about it. Without, yeah. but, but people still do use phones. It wasn't trying to deny that we're, we're now living in a kind of modern age, but it was... It had a kind of classic coolness to it that wasn't hyper-modern. Yeah, I really liked the use of technology in this, I have to say, because phones are quite integral to it. There's a lot of taking photos of documents and, like, uh, Roper's son yeah, or Iris his, scanners. his phone, and that's, like, a key way that, that, that Pine manages to sort of infiltrate the information of the group. But, yeah, you never feel like it's jammed down your throat, which I sometimes do in Sherlock when you can, like, see stuff, like, spinning away on the screen and you're a bit like, oh, we get it, a phone. Yeah, but I think that the interesting thing is that somehow adapting it to the modern era has made it better, I think, because Le Carre is basically a character writer who's writing literary fiction using the Cold War as his kind of excuse and his his device in the same way that... um, I don't know, um, Easy uh, Udigan in uh, Half-Blood Blues, the the Nazis are sort of the device to allow her to explore the issues around miscegenation. And it kind of means... And what happens when the Berlin Wall falls is Le Carre loses the kind of um, device and it doesn't quite work anymore. And the interesting thing is bringing it into this sort of modern era in 2011 and the Arab Spring kind of sort of almost gave it a a lease of life, which was nice and surprising because, oddly, it's something Le Carre has failed to do. He hasn't written a single good novel since the Iraq War, really. Real talk, do you only read good spy novels or do you read bad ones too? I actually quite like the Fleming Bonds. I know that they're... Yeah, no, they are. Like... They're very well written. Once you get, once you let go of the fact that this is a, a weird, racist, misogynist... Sexual I feel really sorry for for Fleming because you just read the books and he just gives a vibe of someone who just like hates women so much but really wants to everyone to see. And you just think in a more enlightened era, I'm sure that Fleming would have you know just like He'd be wearing a man a bun perfect, and like on perfect, a hoverboard, yeah, like perfectly happy gay guy instead of just like this kind of weird obsession with how people who have because the, the one of the running herbs in in Fleming is um 
a woman who thinks that she's gay but is in fact not. Mm. And all of the women are described in a, a way which is hyper-erotic but also quite masculine. And you're just like, hmm, so you're running over it is to write about them in a way where they kind of sound like they're men, but how people who think they're attracted to the same sex are proved wrong. Well, I, I, I wonder what the sign of... <laughs> Freudian tell here is Ian like but but other than that they are they are brilliant and they're a great sort of but that's what um, that's what Dick Francis books are like I I remember my mum pointing out that all Dick Francis books have a bit in them where the hero is sadistically tortured and then goes on the next day to ride a race anyway and at some point you just be like "Mm, okay maybe (laughs) you like the torture actually like there would always be a bit where someone you know gets imprisoned in a box Mm. or like you know locked in a trunk or like there's a bit where a guy gets his hands smashed with a wrench or something like that but, no, but there's always this thing about like even though he's got a broken rib then he like he still rides the horse and you're like okay so there's some weird insight about how for you being a jockey was all about you know you being an unbearable pain but kind of doing it anyway like you you almost relished and enjoyed the pain or i what i tell you what i want a bad bad spy never ever ever watch the film of jack reacher uh which is lee you know lee child's very successful series because that stars um tom cruise and there's one of the saddest quotes in existence which is um so Jack Reacher is supposed to be like six foot four and it's kind of like a wall of, of flesh and he's like you know the, in, in, and Lee Charles said you know in the books the size is meant to convey his unstoppable force Tom Cruise conveys that in a different way <laughs> which I think I've said on this podcast before but it, I still think it's the saddest thing about any like author who gets their book translated just having to put a really kind gloss on getting little tiny little Tom Cruise I think so it's not so I mean so I, 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 I it's not so much for me a kind of serious spy fiction versus non-serious spy fiction i just think as a genre spy fiction hasn't quite recovered from the end of the cold war no i think that was one thing that i like really... american identity am i right <laughs> but i did feel that about the difference between the, the night manager and maybe specter that you know that the, the, the bond films haven't really successfully landed what modern skullduggery looks like at Definitely. the moment um you know and, and and the whole bit with christoph waltz and the weird injecty thing you know all the kind of things that are taken from the kingsley amos um, bomb film that that mm. that bit it just doesn't that, that was a very underwritten villain i felt in the in the last bomb film um you, you just had to take it on trust that they were an evil doing the evil whereas that like you were saying Anna, the thing about richard roper and the night manager is that it's done very cleverly in that you only see acts of violence that have happened you know as a result of him at second or third hand you know he he, the only face of him that you see for the first four episodes at least is that is this very urbane charming kind of guy with this entourage around him but he he looks plausible and i think it's also there is good plausibility given to the mi6 agents who are assisting him you know there's that speech that the american agent goes where he talks about the difference between enforcement and people who want to flip stuff and you say some people want to flip people you know i don't believe in that and clearly what the mi6 agents have told themselves is that you know that they're they're doing it that they're doing this for the kind of greater good right yeah but there's a general thing in it where they have these like very metaphorical with a capital M titles where you see bubbles in a champagne glass turning into atom bombs and a dropping chandelier turning into, you know, like bullets or something. And you're meant to make this sort of gradual connection as you watch The Night Manager that actually all the nice things you're looking at are symptoms of a really, really horrible thing. The thing I mostly learned is that international arms stealing is extremely lucrative. It's like he's <laughs> going to clear a profit of $160 million. I was mm. like... That's wow. Okay. Yeah, That's I like it when money. they're like typing three to pay three hundred million into their like <laughs> mobile zero, zero, banking zero, zero, app. Zero. Just like more zeros, please. <laughs> 
Um, and what do you think? Okay, so the big question that came out of it is, you know, is Tom Hiddleston auditioning for Bond? Do you think that is a good or a bad thing? Um, I don't know because I don't know if I really see the role of James Bond as like the pinnacle of like culture or acting. So I'm sort of like, if he wants to do it, why not do it? But I don't think it's a particularly challenging role for anyone to play. But I think he would be very good at it because it relies on a lot of charisma. I think it is quite challenging because it's such a it's such a surface role. And to do that without it just coming off as kind of glib. I mean, when I think about Bonds, I actually, here's the thing. Also, I've been re-watching Roger Moore's Bonds. And I know this is a thing that probably get me laughed out of the world, but in some ways, aren't they better? They are. No, I mean, I mean, I'm someone who shamefully has never seen a full James Bond film from start what? to finish. Well, I, mean, I watched, the, I rewatched the one with the circus, you know, with the nuclear bomb and the circus, and he has to dress up as the knife thrower, and then the guys gets yeah. fired over in the cannon. That was that was what I wanted. And then there's an island full of ninja women in spandex. That's kind of like just embracing the whole. Mm. It's that whole thing, like. Um, Sylvester Stallone was like weirdly ended up reading I think um, the book um, on masculinity sort of saying that you know the thing about hyper is it does tip into high camp and I think that that era of Bond embraced that very well whereas very recently it hasn't so much anything at the time I can think of it that has is when Javier Bardem does his sort of kind of like oh you know maybe I but, could sleep with you but even then it's to meant to be it. intense and uh, so I, I I I mean yeah to continue the running theme of Stephen having unpopular opinions about films I don't think the Daniel Craig Bond films work because I think they are caught between they basically want to be taken seriously as high art but actually if you if you the second you take Bond seriously as high art, high art it becomes fairly repugnant yeah it, I agree. Uh, it only it's actually the same problem that's happened with the the uh, GTA games as they become more photorealistic you stop being like, yeah, I'm this cool guy going around shooting grannies. And you start, I'm a horrible human being. And the Craig Bonds are just about this horrible, fairly humorless, just quite nasty. I think Tom Hiddleston is too good an actor to do Bond well, which I feel bad about saying to Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan, but I think then Bond is actually at its worst when it has someone like Timothy Dalton or Daniel Craig going, look what a serious role this is, because then the hideousness of Bond... The cartoonishness, is, um, I know what you mean, does does help. And that was certainly, you know, Pierce Brosnan gave it full sort of Irish twinkle, didn't he? Yeah. And, and I think that really helped offset it. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe that's the maybe that is the problem is that Tom Hiddleston would would approach it too in too realistic a fashion, and therefore it would. Oh, also, what I, you know, what's the what would be the defining quality of his Bond? Because I guess the interesting thing about <laughs> Daniel Craig, and it's related to you know he's he's blonde and hench, right? And you've never really had a properly ripped Bond before. I mean, Sean Connery was fit, but in that kind of you know, he used to be a sailor kind of way, not in a kind of he-man now, the kind of intense musculature you can get from crazy exercise where you exercise like one muscle at a time. Mm. Also, I love Tom um, Hiddleston in this role because he's so good at the like sycophantic playing up to slightly posher people than he is kind of vibe that he's got going. And I think that's his like real strength. Talking of which, Stephen, what do you think of Batman versus Superman? I think it's brilliant and everyone should watch it. I don't really, I just think than seeing it I actually the thing I was really surprised at is that it's boring um but then Transformers was boring because Transformers was just seeing something slightly too close up transforming a lot it does make you realize how much you know even the last Avengers film had too much stuff that it just like just admin that it needed to do I don't expect a Zack Snyder film to be good but I mean 300 was not a good film but I wasn't consciously aware of my heartbeat while watching it whereas there was one point when I literally started to listen to my own heartbeat 
because it was more interesting than Batman versus Superman. <laughs> I mean, gonna, it's literally gonna... a film in which you are aware of your slow death. Um, I, that's a, that is a great word. I'm going to say a word of, I actually quite like Zack Snyder's Watchmen. I think the ending of the film is better than the ending of the comic. Uh, and on that unpopular opinion, thank you very much for joining us, Anna. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And uh, now it's time for You Ask Us. Uh, I really liked this one. It was kind of like a which would I prefer being stabbed or shot question. So Shag, marry, kill. That's uh, what I'm thinking now. Yeah, it's uh, sadly we don't have a third person for shag, marry, kill. It's who would you prefer, Donald Trump or Ted Cruz? Well, I so I've, I've written my column this week on Donald Trump and I went through and read a frankly exhaustive list of, of hateful things that he's said about women or done to women. So as well as all the stuff that's been publicised throughout the campaign tray, you know, all the sort of like unbearable laddie jokes and banter, there's all the sort of like him just kind of rating every woman in the world as being insufficiently sexually attractive to be uh, acceptable to one Donald J. Trump Adonis at large. Uh, you know, and the fact that he his his one of his previous wives talked about her, him violently having sex with her, uh, and later clarified that she didn't mean when she described it as rape, she didn't mean in a, in a I think a classical or legal sense. She just meant it did not have the tenderness with which he usually t- treated her. And that was, to me, is symptomatic of why people support Trump, because there is a kind of, I think, a beta male is a very harsh way of putting it, but in a way, it, I think that's partly it is, of a, of a class of men, particularly, who feel oppressed and downtrodden, but would have no language. You know, they don't have the language of, of feminism or anti-racism or gay rights, no, any of those movements to describe what it is that they, you know, the, the disadvantage, the way that they feel structural disadvantage. Because um, we don't really talk so much about class anymore. And, and for a lot of it, we talked before on the podcast about non-graduates and the different ways they vote in the yeah. EU referendum. Um, but, you know, for, for men, white men who don't have very many skills, maybe don't have a university education, who can't get a good job, who aren't, who are no longer head of the household because their partner works, is not reliant on their income. I think that that's what makes Trumpism very attractive. So I, for that reason, I think him getting into office would be very worrying because there isn't a lot of substance to what he says. But essentially this question is, would you prefer someone who says awful things but probably doesn't mean them or someone who says awful things and means them, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if it's a choice between who I would rather the Republicans select, I would prefer Trump because he is much more well-known. Unless, you know, Hillary Clinton starts knifing people and even then they wouldn't be able to vote after she's knifed them uh the uh, the reality is is that she will crush donald trump i think she'll probably crush ted cruz but there's the risk that he could rebrand himself i think as president you'd probably go for trump on the i mean one well, like, i think he'd be useless he'd be incompetent but that's probably better than actively act, awful. <laughs> yeah and, and cruz definitely believes all of this stuff but also i mean given if trump becomes president the chances of global apocalypse go slightly higher right and if cruz yeah, becomes he might president Iran, but then the chances well. of global apocalypse go slightly higher so if in you know ten thousand years like the few remaining human beings have re-established and they found the equivalent of the rosetta stone 
Would I rather they looked back at our the last president of doomed America, Trump or Cruz? I mean, you'd prefer Trump. I mean, if you're going to go out in a fireball, you want to go out with some a kind of weird, evil style. Televised fireball. Yeah, I mean, you know, Trump has a weird, evil style. What I think Cruz is just, is mm. really interesting about about the fact that it's come down to the two of them is that they are both candidates that the GOP establishment didn't want, right? Yeah. They, they ran Marco Rubio to stop Cruz, basically. Yeah. And Trump just kind of barreled in, having given previously money to the Democrats and actually having, in some respects, a very... Some some of his positions are very left-wing. You know, he's not against Planned Parenthood. He doesn't kind of go in for that. I, you know, I can't imagine he cared particularly much about gun rights before about last Tuesday when it became a kind of convenient thing to say in the primary season. You know, he's very protectionist, for example. He's certainly not a libertarian or a, a you know, free market fundamentalist. So... Why? How is this, you know, this incredible institution that is the Republican Party? How has it lost control of itself so much that it's ended up with the last two candidates being the two that it did not want? I think that is a, a fascinating question. I mean, can I drop the N bomb and us keep our PG rating? No, I cannot drop the N bomb and drop our PG rating. <laughs> but um, so the, the the Republican Party, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act made a conscious decision to win elections through... Dog whistle? Dog whistle politics. So there's a famously at water quote. So yeah, in the 60s, you used to be able to say, word I can't say without um, jeopardising our parent, our universal rating. But, you know, that hurts you, that backfires. So instead of saying that word again, you say uh, forced busing, states' rights. And what you're talking about, actually, is you're talking about black people. And that's what the Republicans have done, and that worked very well for them with their lock on the South until Clinton, who obviously was a Southern Democrat and was able to take a chunk out of that base. But what's happened is is the non-white, graduate-educated American electorate has got larger, and now that Southern strategy has become their prison. And they have went into overdrive when Obama was elected. I mean, when they talk about, you know, Hillary Clinton gave a brilliant speech about this when they were saying, oh, he can't nominate someone to the Supreme Court. Said, well, almost as if they're saying he's not the real president. And really, they've been feeding this, mm. this, birtherism. this, this, this birtherism, this, which obviously Trump was, uh, was the kind of celebrity birther. And now Trump is basically the guy who, who will say, who, you know, he won't say, uh, bussing civil states' rights, he will just say the word I can't say without jeopardising our podcast rating. Yeah, I think that's... I read a really interesting piece on The Intercept that actually was kind of on that line as about saying, you know, we're looking for people to blame for the rise of Donald Trump. Well, actually, let's talk about liberals and let's talk about the fact that, you know, much like a sort of Clarkson or a Rod Little, then it's kind of seen as being quite exciting to have that kind of maverick voice but from somebody you assume must basically be okay right he's not a hillbilly he's not a you know he's not a member of the Ku Klux Klan he's not one of those wasn't like the duck dynasty brothers you know with all their guns and they live in Mm -hmm. sort of some swamp in Alabama he was a New York real estate mogul but he said the things that kind of you know shocked and 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 people were delighted to be shocked by them and I think you know something I didn't manage to write this week which I wanted to was about the fact that I just worry that We've come so far now from actual fascism that we kind of find people flirting with it kind of entertaining rather than there is no expectation that what might come after flirting with fascism is actual fascism. And then, of course, there is like the breakdown of the traditional news. And this is why we are... um, I actually have... I don't think I've cheerled for the BBC for a while on this podcast. This is why um, we are so lucky to have the BBC and why it's very important uh, that... Everyone is very vocal about attempts to chip away at it. Then there is no institution in America which has a reach across Facebook and the internet 
which has any commitment to relatively non-partisan news. Mm. You have things like Freebate, Beacon, Red State, Breitbart, and they've created this febrile atmosphere which has allowed a fairly scary guy to get, you know... I mean, okay, admittedly, he's going to be crushed, but it's still fairly yeah, but, scary. Uh, but this is the thing. I can no longer enjoy, you know, after... Not I would in any way put Jeremy Corbyn in the same league, but after the upset of, oh, we'll just let, you know, somebody have a crack at running because it's funny... And then them going on to win. I'm just, I again, I am now, that is no longer an amusing prospect that we'll just, oh, we'll just let Donald Trump be the nominee and it'll be funny because Hillary Clinton but, I mean, crush him. But admittedly, you know, like Jeremy Corbyn was elected by less than 0.1% of the British population. Trump is winning the primaries with about maybe 15% of the American population. When 60% of the population votes, Trump will, uh, will find it very different. Uh, so I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, but I may just be saying that to delude our readers into not uh, buying up the corrugated iron until I've built my air raid shelter. Shotgun and the Krugerrands. Uh, on that note, thank you, Stephen, and thank you for, to our unnamed listener for asking us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. 